Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This mystery is a profound one, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together before we begin. We would collectively, Father, pool our faith right now and unite our hearts to resist the devil. You have told us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And in another place, you said, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. And so we declare our faith in the superior strength of Jesus Christ over Satan right now. And we renounce him and resist him. And would ask you, Almighty Jesus Christ, to banish him from this room and deliver any who are being held in bondage by the clutches of the evil one. May the angel of the Lord encamp around this place. May there be, as it were, chariots of fire. May every saint be holding up the shield of faith and taking in his or her hand the sword of the Spirit. And may Satan tremble. And at the end of this service, may he lie with our foot on his neck. Be triumphant, Lord Jesus, in this 30 minutes, I pray, that remains. And magnify your purposes for marriage, for the glory of yourself and your church. Amen. I want to jump in at verse 31 to the text that Dallas just read. And so if you still have your Bibles open, you could notice with me that that verse of Ephesians 5 is a quote from Genesis 2.24. And it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. And then, in the next verse, 32... Paul turns around, looks back at verse 31, and he says, This mystery is profound or great, 
And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, why is it that a man and a woman, leaving mother and father and joining and becoming one flesh, is a mystery? Why is it a mystery? Answer, because for a long time it concealed, without very many people recognizing it, that its true and deepest meaning is that it is a model of Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is that it is intended by God, it was designed by God in creation to be a metaphor, a parable, an image, a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. It stands for Christ and the church. He wants to say something with this living drama of how Christ relates to the church. Now, notice in verses 28 to 30 how he uh, spells out this parallel between uh, Christ as the one body with the church and uh, a husband as one flesh with his wife. Let's read that. It says in verse 28, Even so husbands should love their wives, even so husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, since they're one flesh. He who loves his wife loves himself. She's part of him now. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. In other words, the one flesh union that happened at marriage so constitutes husband and wife as a unity that what he does to her, he's doing to himself. So if he treats her well, he's treating himself well. If he hurts her, he's hurting himself. Now let's pick it up and note the other half of the analogy with Christ and the church. Near the end of verse 29, it says, uh, the husband nourishes and cherishes his own flesh as Christ does, that is, as he nourishes and cherishes, the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. So you see, the analogy is carried right on through. Here is Christ as a head over a body. He's all one body with his church. Here's a husband, his head over his wife, and he's all one flesh with his wife. So what the Christ does to the body, he does because they're members of his body. And what the husband does to his wife, he, he ought to do because she's one flesh with him. And he's really doing it to himself as well as to her. So if you want to understand the, the basic and most profound meaning of, of biblical marriage, you have to recognize that marriage is a copy of an original. It's a metaphor of some other reality. It's a, a parable of some other truth. And the, the copy, the metaphor, and the original are Noel and John Piper married 20 and a half years ago. And the reality and the truth and the original is Jesus Christ married to the church from all eternity by his choice. That's the meaning of marriage. Noel and I, in obedience to Christ, are to image forth for the world to see what it's like for Jesus to love the church and the church to submit to Jesus. 
That's the meaning of marriage in its most basic and mysterious form. Now, one of the things to learn from this right off the bat is that the roles of husband and wife are not arbitrarily assigned. They have profound meaning and deep roots in the relationship of Christ to the church. And those roles are not reversible any more than the role of Christ and his church is reversible. The role of husband and wife are rooted in the distinctive roles of Christ and the church. God means by marriage to say something to the world about how his son relates to the church and how his church relates to his son. So let's just pause and look at verses 23 to 25 and and ask how this works itself out in the various roles of wife and husband. Verse 24 speaks to wives about their half of the metaphor. And verses 23 and 25 speak about the husband's half of the metaphor. Let's look at those. Wives, it says, find your distinctive role as a wife by keying off of the way the church relates to Christ. Namely, verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. And then to the husbands. Find your distinctive role in relationship to your wife by keying off of the way Christ relates to the church. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, let's just step back a moment and think about this in relationship to what we've developed in the previous three messages. I tried to argue from Genesis 1 and 2 and partly from Genesis 3 that God's original intention for man and woman in relationship to each other is that the man had a special responsibility for leadership in relationship to the woman. And the woman had a special responsibility for supporting and honoring that leadership. And sin entered the world and ruined both of those things. And what I want to stress here is that sin did not create headship and submission. Sin ruined headship and submission, which were there in sinless form before sin entered the world. Sin took headship in all of its sinless beauty and wrecked it and made some men into passive, disinterested, lazy, no-goods who don't do anything in the family and made out of other men uh, brutal, domineering, harsh, insensitive people. And it took uh, the loving, willing, glad submission and support of that leadership on the part of sinless woman and wrecked it and turned some women into helpless coquettes who don't have any thoughts in their brains and other women into harsh and domineering and a whole slew of distortions in between for male and female. 
Sin, when it came into the world, did not create headship and submission. It ruined headship and submission. Now, if that's true, that's the last three messages. If that's true, what you would expect when Jesus comes into the world and begins redeeming people is not that he would cancel headship and cancel submission, but that he would redeem them. And that's exactly what you find in Ephesians 5. That's exactly what's going on here. He's saying, wives, let your fallen submission be redeemed by modeling it after the way Christ wants his church to relate to him in freedom. Husbands, let your fallen headship be redeemed by modeling your headship on the analogy of Christ's love and leadership for his church. So I conclude that headship is not a right taken to rule or control. It's a responsibility to love like Christ, which means in specific a responsibility for a husband to lay down his life for his wife in servant leadership. A responsibility to lay down his life for his wife in servant leadership. And submission is not slavish or coerced or cowering. That's not the way Christ wants his church to respond to him. Rather, it's free, it's willing, it's glad, it's refining, it's strengthening. In other words, what this passage is doing is two things. It's guarding headship against abuses. And it's guarding submission against debasement. That's what this text is doing. Those two things. It's hedging God's created order of headship and submission against all abuses and all debasement. Maybe the most helpful thing I could do at this point would be to step back and give a crisp definition from the text of of headship and submission and then bring up a couple of objections that are raised to this vision that to me is so beautiful and then close with some practical uh, implications of what it would mean for husbands and wives if, if they believed what I'm saying. So first, let me give you a definition of headship and a definition of of submission. And uh, I wish I had time this morning to unpack every word in in this definition, which we'll do sometime. We'll we'll have a popcorn with the pastor and uh, we can unpack every word and you can ask questions. But every word, I've labored over these definitions for about 15 years now. And uh, spent several hours yesterday working on them again. The ones I gave you, Oscar, at Pizza Hut to try them out, I've altered a little bit since yesterday afternoon even. Here's my definition of headship. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. I'll say it again. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like 
servant leadership and protection and provision in the home. Now, here's my definition of submission. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Say it again. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Now, I'm going to come back and spell that out in some practical implications at the end. But at this point, I want to raise a couple of objections to this vision of a husband's loving, Christ-like servant leadership and a wife's honoring, affirming support for that leadership and her assistance in carrying it out. Objection number one. Now, the reason I raise these objections is this. We live in a period of history where both the language and the reality of this message is despicable in most people's minds. I've heard it called obscene by fellow Christians, what I'm teaching you this morning, obscene. The atmosphere in which you live, both in the secular world and by and large in the church, reprobates what I'm talking about here and regards it as reprehensible. Now, knowing that, I want at least to alert you to the two most common means used to nullify what I'm saying from this text, which to me seems so obvious. So, objection number one or nullification procedure number one is this. The argument says, verse 21 teaches mutual submission, and mutual submission rules out hierarchy, or distinction of roles as I've defined them. Look at verse 21. Let's make sure we see this now. It says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's a quote from an author that I was reading yesterday. Quote, By definition, mutual submission rules out hierarchical differences. End quote. In other words, if you believe in mutual submission between a husband and a wife from verse 21, you cannot believe in the distinction of roles that gives a primary responsibility for leadership to the husband and a unique responsibility to affirm that leadership and help carry it into action on the part of the wife. It's a contradiction. Now, question, is that true? Is that true? You see it everywhere. Yesterday, I read the new issue of Christianity Today, which is an excellent article in it about wife abuse in Christian families. And I want to take this opportunity to say that that's probably happening in some Bethlehem homes among professing Christians. Slaps her around. If a wife like that came to me 
you may be assured, and I just want to say this as a kind of parenthesis, that my first response would not be, if you just be submissive, he wouldn't do that. I would not say that. For this reason, I know from statistics that generally the most abused women are the most submissive women. It's the husband's problem when he's beaten his wife up. It's the husband's problem. Okay? But now, having said that, what frustrates the daylights out of me in an article like this is that it ends with this universal evangelical solution today by simply saying what everybody needs is the teaching on mutuality. And it doesn't say a word about the husband's unique leadership role in which he leads on his knees with a towel like Jesus. It thinks that all you need to do is spread the word of mutuality. Brothers and sisters, if the Bible is true, that's not all this world needs. It's not all this world needs. Husbands need to hear more. And wives need to hear more. It is not true, I'm going to argue, that mutuality of submission and servanthood rules out distinction of roles as I've described them. Now, the way I can show you that is by simply reading the next page of this author that I just quoted from. He contradicts himself and shows that even he does not believe that mutual submission rules out hierarchy. Here's the quote. Quote, The church thrives on mutual subjection. I say amen. In a spirit-led church, I'm still quoting, in a spirit-led church, the elders submit to the congregation in being held accountable for their watch care over the congregation, and the congregation submits to the elders in accepting their guidance. Close quote. In the footnote, a hundred page later, he even uses the word, the congregation obeys the leaders in this mutual submission. Now, here's my question to this author and to you if you think this way. If it is possible to conceive of an atmosphere in a church of mutual submission between people and elders, and if it's possible in that relationship for the elders to have a primary responsibility to give guidance and the people to have a special responsibility to respond positively and affirm and accept that guidance, why can't that be imagined in marriage? Something's wrong here. Of course it can be imagined in marriage. It is not true that to say that the man should be the loving Christ-like servant leader of his family and to say that the wife should affirm and joyfully honor that leadership and assist carrying it into action is contradicted by mutual servanthood. It's not true. It's a lie. Now, the way you can find out it's not true from the text is by asking this question. Did Christ and the church mutually submit to each other? Now, see, if they didn't, the whole thing's a wash anyway. Everything hangs on saying Christ and the church must have mutually submitted to each other because that's the next phrase after verse 21. Calling husbands to love like Christ and wives to submit like Christ or like the church. Did they mutually submit? 
in a sense they did, but not in the same sense to each other by any means, right? What would Christ's submission to the church be? Well, you could all answer that. I would put it like this. Christ's submission to the church is his servant leadership that cost him his life. He submitted to the needs of the church in that sense. He, he so was willing to lower himself and humble himself and let himself be a servant that it cost him his life. So, yes. And the church submits mutually back, but not in the same way as though Christ needed to be led or redeemed, but rather in affirming and honoring that leadership and following him in the Calvary road. It's just not true, brothers and sisters. Be critical thinkers. Listen carefully to the things you're hearing. It is not true that mutual submission rules out distinction in role with a husband as a Christ-like servant leader and a wife as one who affirms and honors that leadership and assists carrying it into action. It's just not true. End objection number one. Now, objection number two is this. It's a newer one. Wasn't on the scene anywhere in the universe before 20 years ago. I don't think before 10 years ago. Namely, the argument that the word head does not have anything to do with leadership at all. It only means source. Or, as we would say, fountainhead. Or head of a river. This is the most common, this is the new way of nullifying the teaching of verses 22 to 33. To just say head has nothing to do with leadership, and therefore the whole concept of seeing leadership for a husband in this text is misguided. Now, what can we do here in a sermon when long, detailed Greek word studies have been written on this? Well, you're never going to read those. They're too technical. But I think I can show you something that everybody can see from this text that will show that that objection does not succeed in nullifying the teaching of this text as I've developed it. So let me try and see what you think. Um, the picture here, let's get it straight. The image of a husband as the head and the wife as the body. Uh, you can see, can't you, from verse 30, right? I think it's at the beginning of verse 30 here that uh, the picture of Christ as the head and his church as the body is the same one, really, that you have back in chapter 4, where Christ is the head and we are the church, his, his body and his members, so that uh, he, he, the picture is, is of a body standing in front of you, and the head is Jesus Christ, and the body is the church, and the members of the body are all of, all of us. And then the analogy is a husband and a wife. He's the head and she's the body. And uh, so they are one, they're one flesh and they're one body. Now, let's take the meaning source and ask this question. Uh, what is the head, the husband, the source of? What does the body, the wife, draw, get from her fountain head? The husband. Well, one answer is given in the text, verse 29, nourishment. You could say that. Nourishes and cherishes his body. 
And that's easy to understand because the mouth is in the head, right? So if you just follow the analogy through, the the mouth is in the head, so if the body needs food, where's it going to get it? It's going to get it like this. It goes in the mouth and and comes from the head. So the, the head nourishes the body by having the mouth in the head that is fed. But now, let me ask you, just thinking about Christ as the head of the church and the fountainhead of the church, with what does Christ nourish the church? And what do we depend upon Christ for? Or another way to ask it would be, what else is in the head? Eyes are in the head. So that guidance comes from the head. Ears are in the head that can hear dangerous things coming up from behind. And so a kind of protection comes from the head. And and you could go on. You see, all I want to say is this. I don't think head means source in this text. But to defend that would take hours of exegetical work and about 2,000 other references in Greek literature. So I just want to say, if it means head, the natural way of picturing the image shows that the same lesson is going to be taught as if it means leadership or guidance. Namely, that the husband postured on the top of his body, the wife, has a special primary responsibility to guide, to nourish or provide, and to protect her. And it would be fun to carry the analogy through and to show how she is absolutely essential in assisting in all of those things. She gathers the food. She helps fight the enemy off. I mean, it would be so much fun to work with this. But to say that it somehow nullifies the whole distinction between Christ and His church in their varied roles of mutually submitting to each other is not acceptable. It won't fly. It won't wash. And I think history will bear that out eventually. So let me wind things up with some practical implications of the uh, vision of a loving, Christ-like, servant, leader, who's the husband, and a willing, glad, affirming, supporting wife who assists carrying that leadership into action. Implication number one. Verse 25, where it says, "Love their Husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That revolutionizes the way a husband leads this ties right in with where we ended last week. Do you remember in Luke 22:26, where Jesus said, Let the leader become as one who serves. He doesn't say husbands stop leading or elders stop leading or sheriffs and mayors and governors and presidents and senators and stop leading. There's no condemnation of leadership in the New Testament. There is a revolution of leadership in the New Testament, however. The responsibility of leadership is given to a husband in the family not to puff himself up, but to build his family up. Implication number two. Let's talk about submission. Submission does not mean putting the husband in the place of Christ. It's very important. One could jump to that conclusion if you took one verse out of context and say... 
submit to him as to Christ. But the as is important. There's an analogy, but not an identity. And the reason we know that is because verse 21 says, Submit yourselves to each other out of reverence for Christ. So the, the submission that's coming to the husband from the wife is out of reverence to Christ. And if it's out of reverence to Christ, he maintains his unique authority. Her reverencing Christ is primary to her responsiveness to her husband. It's rooted in it. Which has other implications like this. Namely, a husband's word is never absolute over a wife. Christ is always absolute over a wife. A wife must and dare never follow her husband into sin. Why? Because she cannot reverence Christ in sin. And she is following out of reverence. It doesn't mean, women, surrendering thought, independent thought. How do we know that? Because in 1 Peter 3, the wife is the believer, the husband's not a believer, and the whole text is written to show her how to get him saved, which means she's an independent thinker on religious matters. She's saved, he's not, and in no place does there any suggestion given that she should somehow adapt her thought processes about religion to his pagan thought processes. It does not mean ignorance or incompetence. Oh, how many times the idea of leadership is parodied with words like, oh, she's not good enough to lead. It's not the point. It has nothing to do with goodness or value. It has to do with appropriateness and fitness in the design of created order from God. And that word fitness is used in Colossians 3.18 where it says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting, not as is demanded by your inferiority in the Lord. Submission is an inclination of a woman's will to say yes to her husband's leadership or the disposition of her spirit to support his initiatives. Now, let me unfold those two phrases. The inclination of her will to say yes, glad, yes, I'm so glad you're taking leadership. That's the first thing submission means. And the second thing is a disposition of spirit to be supportive and positively responsive to his initiatives. Now, why do I say inclination and disposition? And the reason is this. Because even in the best of homes, the best leader and the best responder, she is going to rightly have to hesitate at some of his decisions. I'll give you an example. Suppose it's Noel and me, and uh, I'm about to do something dumb for the family. Real dumb. Okay? And Noel sees this coming, and she sees that it's dumb. It's going to hurt the family. It's going to be a mistake. Is it possible in that kind of situation for a woman to express that feeling 
and be submissive? And my answer is an absolute, unqualified yes. For example, I just thought these words up for Noel. She would say something like, Johnny, I know you've thought a lot about this, and I love it when you take initiative and plan for us like this. But I really, I really don't have peace about this decision. And I think we need to talk about it some more. Could we? Like maybe tonight? Sometime? Now, the reason I do not think that is a contradiction of biblical submissiveness is threefold. I got three reasons why that is perfectly right for a wife to do. Reason number one, husbands, unlike Christ, are fallible. See, it's real dangerous to say, I'm Christ in this relationship, right? Well, you could draw all kinds of crazy implications from that. And one would be, I'm infallible like Jesus is. Well, I'm not. Now, if that's true, that, in, that fallibility has to find some expression somewhere in the relationship, in my leadership. Some characteristic of my leadership needs to give expression to my fallibility. Okay? Now, one way would be to just make it known to your wife, those kinds of queries are welcome. Okay? Number two, husbands ought to want their wives to be excited about their decisions, not coerced. Why? Because Christ wants His church to be excited about His decisions, not coerced. Now, Christ, here's another difference between me and Jesus. He has this hedge on me where He's got the Holy Spirit to change His bride and make her like what He says to do. That's called sanctification. I don't have that power. Lacking that power, I must somehow mold my leadership to win delight in my leadership. And that is revolutionary. How you do that. And the third reason, I do not think this is a contradiction of biblical submissiveness, is that the way Noel expressed those misgivings communicated clearly an amen and yes to my leadership. And I believe that's real important for wives to communicate. You can do a lot of querying, a lot of talking, a lot of questioning. If your whole demeanor, spirit, disposition is communicating to your husband day after day, I'm so glad you are the man in this family. Or the, you know, the old tradition, you wear the pants in this family. Or you take responsibility in this family. I'm so glad it's like that. And you can communicate that in many ways, which sets you up then for much freedom in the give and take of how you make decisions in the family.